Welcome everyone to Be Physiatry Mentors. I'm Dr. Sheena Buba. I'm Dr. Benita Williams. And together we are Shanisha. Nice. All right. Well, today I'm super excited because we have two people who are very near and dear to my heart, Dr. Brad Sarosky and Dr. Susan Sarosky. Welcome, guys. Um, they're hashtag couple goals, right? So they are married and they have a fellowship in Phoenix, Arizona called the Desert Spine and Sports Position. So today we'll talk a little bit about the fellowship and just what it takes to be a competitive candidate and we'll maybe go into a little bit more detail about private practice if we have some time. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hi, if you guys can go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself, tell us where you're from, a little bit about your training, and how you ended up in the subspecialty of sports and spine. I'm from Southern California. Uh, <clears throat> I went to UCLA and then UT Southwestern, which is where I met uh, my wife, Susan, in medical school. Um, <clears throat> if you get in from out of state, uh, Rossboro has a huge endowment and you pay in-state tuition, so it was my cheapest opportunity. Oh, nice. I didn't know that. Um, and then I did my uh, residency and fellowship at the Rehab Institute of Chicago. Uh, I think it's now called Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Uh, and Susan uh, joined me there as well. And I went to Yale University for undergrad, majored in psychobiology and pre-med, and then went to UT Southwestern. I'm actually from Texas, so I went back to my home state and uh, met Brad, uh, who's a year ahead, and he introduced me to the field of physical medicine rehabilitation. No idea what it was that was about, so that was very fortuitous. And then we ended up going to the same residency year ahead at RIC, uh, and then we moved to Phoenix after that and set up shop. Nice. So, you know, as you mentioned, so DSSP is a private practice and oftentimes fellows are a little bit worried about doing a fellowship in a private practice. So if you guys want to kind of talk a little bit about that and also just how is your practice set up? Yeah, well, <clears throat> we mirrored it a lot um, on what we, how we were trained at the Rehab Institute of Chicago. Um, it's a spine sports practice and uh, we're proud physiatrists. Um, so, you know, we focus on function and returning people back to things that they want to do. Um, and we're all encompassing. So we take care of people of all ages, anything musculoskeletal, uh, we manage. Our practice is probably 70% spine and 30% peripheral. Um, as far as uh, private practice goes, um, that was uh, probably more in line with our kind of philosophy and, and being able to move quickly. Um, I, grew frustrated sometimes in academics and processes and committees. And we wanted a little bit more uh, leeway in, in how we wanted to take care of patients. Yeah. Very good. So, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. So I was just going to say, you know, because I, I think uh, Sheena mentioned something about how that is in a fellowship. So, um, you know, it allows us a, a lot of flexibility with our fellows. So in order to tailor our training towards what the fellow needs, um, they come in with different skills and they come in with different goals. Um, and we're able to kind of modify that as the year goes on. And also impart, you know, to, uh, information and skills about practice management, because that's not something a resident necessarily needs residency with those kind of skills to do. And that might be somebody's interest. So. 
Yes, yeah, Tina and I have talked about that in the past and think that is definitely uh, something very key to learn is the business of medicine because it's very much a business and you don't get enough of that in residency training. So to be able to get that in fellowship is wonderful. Yeah. And when I started my job, like they were super impressed that I already knew like everything about billing and coding and it just made that transition so much smoother. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and when we say business, it's not you know how to make more money necessarily. You know, I think it's, it's right. You should care first. Really, billing and coding is important. You know, how to market yourself, um, how to interact with other specialties. Um, you know, those are all important things. You know, when you send a note, um, I think it's important to know what specialist you're sending it to. You know, that may be a different. You may modify it if it's going to a neurologist versus you know primary care or a spine a spine surgeon. So that's all the stuff that we kind of trying to put under that business umbrella rather than just the finances. Absolutely. So this is the first year that NASH, um, International Spine Musculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship Match. How did the accreditation come about and what exactly does that mean for your um, program to be part of that? Yeah, you know, to take it a step back farther, there was first, obviously you guys are aware because I've known you guys for a couple of years, but there was the ACGME and then there was non-ACGME. And that was a struggle, I think, for residents to decide what was a better fit for them. <clears throat> Under the ACGME umbrella, there was pain and then there were sports. Um, and I think each had its pros and cons. Um, pain, in large part, maybe you got enough uh, procedures, although not all programs. But on the flip side of that, they were mostly managed by anesthesiologists. And I'm afraid that some of the physical medicine rehab docs lost their identity in those uh, fellowships. Um, they were doing electrodiagnostic studies, uh, they may not get a lot of exposure to um, non-spine, um, uh, they won't get exposure to sports, um, and then you know, they weren't getting exposure to things like chronic pain management and cancer pain, which may or may not have been an interest to you know, an individual. On the, on the other side, there was the sports HGME, which um, I think did a good job in, in training in history and physical exam and diagnostics, but maybe you didn't get all the interventional skills that you wanted. So, and then, there, and then on the other side, there was a non-ACGME, which was where we fell in. Um, we were spine sports and, you know, we felt that we were training docs uh, to what society and, and the community needs. Uh, you know, someone, if you hurt yourself and you don't feel good and there's something wrong with your body, you don't have to think about it. You just go to this practice and, and they'll get you on the right, right track. Um, the problem with that was there was, that really expanded and expanded and expanded and there wasn't maybe a lot of, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Consistency um, and, uh, across all those nine ACGME and, and were they all giving really good training opportunities for the fellows? So NAS came about because of that um, to really try to standardize uh, the curriculum uh, and make sure that all the programs were up a certain level. So a fellow felt confident if they went to one of these programs that they'd come out well trained and, and you know able to hit the ground running. Um, and we've been, uh, NASA's been in the background for a few years and perhaps even um, when she knows with our practice in terms of a curriculum that we are following loosely in terms of didactics um, and education. Um, but it's, it's finally taken its shape now and we're having a formal match this year, which is nice to even the playing field between the candidates and practices. Um, and it also will present a yeah, more standardized experience for the fellow and perhaps more interactive, although the you know, information we have is still um, taking shape. 
that we might be having interactive journal clubs between the practices and other kind of didactic experiences and much more standardized repository of literature to go through, et cetera. Um, but it was it's difficult, um, you know, being a part of NAS. So, you know, being part of NAS accreditation um, isn't just, you know, signing up and wanting to be a part of it. You'll have to meet certain criteria in terms of scholarly activity, um, um, what kind of education, different kind of lectures presented, um, other kind of involvements in societies, et cetera. So there's a point scale to be part of NAS um, and to keep being a part of NAS. So, um, Hopefully that continues. We're one of the few private practices part of it, so. Um. That's a big deal. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. All right. And so I know, you know, we all keep hearing just the other day, there was an article that said the um, competitiveness of PM&R has increased significantly. I think it's now one of the most competitive specialists or DO students. So um, I'm sure you have seen that in the applicants that have come in um, I don't envy you guys having to choose, you know, <laughs> you guys are going to pick as your next fellows, but um, what do you guys, you know, specifically look for in an applicant um, who's applying to your program? Yeah, I mean, this year, this year is an incredible applicant pool. I mean, uh, the NAS, NAS Association um, has, has really done uh, a big, big difference in terms of applicant pool, and I think in general, the people applying to Spine Sports Medicine Fellowships. Um, in fact, you know, we finished our 20th Zoom interview. It's just hard to differentiate on the applications coming in, and we needed to meet meet these people in person. And um, had it been had it been otherwise, we would have had them come out to us. But with COVID, we conducted that on Zoom. Um, but yeah, you know, so first, it's incredible how much um, PM&R has advanced. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we're getting old. Uh, so you know, I, I, we finished in 2005, so we we're 15 years in, and you know, it was. Yeah, it was us and maybe psychiatry that were at the bottom of the barrel. N nothing against psychiatry, but just, you know, it wasn't attracting a lot of uh, the star uh, medical students and things have changed. And we see it now manifest in the applicants for the, for the fellowship. Way, way more competitive, uh, mm -hmm. which is exciting to see. Yeah, so. But yeah. what we look for. Oh, what we look for yeah. in a fellow. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's interesting. I think. When you get into medical school, so much of it's about numbers, right? You have to have the straight A's and the MCAT score, et cetera. Hey. <laughs> uh, so, but you know, uh, as you move up the ladder, I think in residency and fellowship especially, you know, personality makes a huge, huge, uh, or that's a big factor in who we uh, decide. Um, we spend a lot of time with the fellow. We want to get along well. Um, and then, you know, on that front, they're also a face of our practice. They're seeing a lot of our patients. We work really hard to build up this practice, and we want to make sure that we maintain it and continue to grow. So that fellow needs to, um, you know, I think our current fellow gave two adjectives uh, that he thought was important. I, I concur, and that is calm and confident. You know, I think that's what patients are looking for, right? They, they don't want to see a doctor fidgeting and nervous um, and unsure of themselves, you know, makes them nervous because they're already very vulnerable when they come to see us with, with an ailment. So I think personality is really important. Um, there's some, uh, there's some other traits uh, that uh, <laughs> Susan uh, thinks are really important too. Oh, well, we usually, we get this question a lot, um, but teachability is probably the most important thing. And that's hard to ga gather, certainly in a one hour Zoom interview and, and even two, two days with, with an applicant um, were, were to be in person. But teachability and just, I use the word being a sponge because there's a lot of attendings, at least in our practice, there's four attendings that the fellowship and inter fellow interacts with. And, and while we all have um, a similar way of approaching things, we all have a different, a little bit different nuances. And so the fellow needs to be receptive to a lot of ways of doing 
doing the same thing. Um, so they can choose for, for themselves when they want to go out on their own um, and see what is the best way that works for them. But just the ability to be a sponge and soak it up. Um, and, and as well, we tell fellows, we're soaking it up from them. We're, we're all very humble, very open to learning. And I think everyone has an opportunity to teach everybody in the practice. And then, you know, as we describe this, this perfect fellow, Sheena comes to mind. She was, <laughs> she definitely, right. <laughs> the other thing, you know, that, that Dr. Bugo was incredible at, um, is, you know, trying to think about what's the next thing that's going to happen, whether it's in the procedure or the clinic, anticipating it and then helping. Right. So, um, some residents, uh, you guys have trained residents in medical students, they kind of sit in a chair and they wait to be told. Um, and then others kind of think, oh, I've seen this, you know, the next thing we need to do is draw up this medication or clean the table or what we have. And, you know, the person that kind of anticipates that and, and then takes action, it, you know, it makes life better and it kind of sets the pace and sets the tone for a successful day. Being proactive. Absolutely. That's important. Because a lot of times, you know, procedures not been, we, for example, we do kyphoplasties. Do we do kyphoplasties every day? No. Um, but there's certainly a fair amount of exposure in a given schedule. But if that, that doesn't intersect with that person's schedule and they see another attending has a kyphoplasty in the schedule, they need to be not aggressive, but putting themselves out there and saying, hey, I need to learn more of these kind of things. I need to get into the procedure room and we're being flexible in order to accommodate that. But it takes a little gumption on the side of the, of the resident or the fellow to do that too. So have you, as you mentioned, some you guys have been doing Zoom interviews before we started. You've done quite a bit of them already. Um, how has the COVID pan pandemic affected that? And do you feel like you're being able to know the fellows in that short amount of time? Uh, <laughs> I know it's hard, right? <laughs> I can imagine. We really, we usually do two-day interviews. So um, I'm, I'm the... Um, the fellowship director, so I'm in charge of looking at, you know, an application usually has rosy letters, a wonderful CV, everybody, I mean, boy, all the research that everyone's being put into their applications, and it's very impressive. So we decided to interview quite a bit of people this year because of COVID, right? So we interviewed 21 people. Yeah. Um, but it's hard. It's hard, to, it's hard to get to know somebody in that period of time, and we might have a few questions to throw out, out at them, and if that goes well, it's great. If not, it's a little rattly. We try to keep it calm and open and, and a dialogue in order, like Brad said, to kind of get to know their personalities, since that's really, really important. Um, the NAS fellowship application also allows us to see other things like um, uh, USMLE scores, et cetera, and sometimes SAE scores are presented. So it, that kind of extra information is helpful, too. But it doesn't take, it's not at all a replacement for seeing someone for two days. But. Yeah, it's hard because as you talk about, the personality is huge and seeing how you fit in with the practice. So I, we have medical students that are coming into our, our clinic right now, but so many of them, the schools have cut off rotations completely. And I'm like, that is, I feel so bad for them because that's how you really feel what residency or fellowship you also the part is being able to go. So it's going to be interesting. So hope that's why, you know, that's why Shane and I decided to do this to hopefully just put some information out for medical students and residency residents so they know what opportunities are available to them. And we were hoping that we'd be able to open it up for in-person, but it's in Arizona as it is in Texas. It's uh, pretty bleak. So we'll have to do for this year and cross yeah. our fingers. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, um, you're going to see more residents staying at fellowships that are you know, at the mm -hmm. nearby. You know, I think more people are going to be selecting known entities because yeah. known is, is bigger than, than usual, um, which is kind of unfortunate. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Pat, for your... 
Go ahead. And we're just saying we're also grateful. We have a lot of a big network and we've been around obviously a long time. So we also rely on, you know, knowing who's at what program that might know somebody. And I've bugged Sheena quite a bit about, do you know this yeah. person? And I, I have to rely on other people's word of mouth too, because obviously the letters of recommendation are really, really nice, but they don't differentiate people very well. So it, it, it helps me rely on <laughs> Right. So. Yep. Design through the small field, so you gotta, you know, always give a good impression. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't know who knows. No, yeah. Who knows who, so. <laughs> Very true. Very true. I, I was on our last Zoom, we were talking that you guys were going to be on, and I said, I remember when we met um, Brad at the residency fair. I said, I was Sheena's hype woman. <laughs> and I'm like, she's amazing. <laughs> remember that. Well, along the same lines with the, with the fellows, has the pandemic, you know, affected I know. their education so and what about their job search? Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> on the job search, uh, I'll hold on. You know, their education for like a week, uh, we, we shut them out of the procedure room just as we were kind of um, trying to figure out the next step. And we wanted to reduce kind of any crowds, you know, including um, in the procedure room. And what after a couple of weeks, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, oh, and we wanted to save gloves, too. We were trying to kind of figure out this PPE thing and the shortage, obviously. We wanted to make sure that we were contributing to uh, a shortage. So, you know, as, as we realized that gloves are our main PPEs, um, you know, we felt more comfortable uh, going back into the procedure room. Obviously, we switched almost entirely to telehealth for our clinic. And then um, had a, you know, we always have a high threshold for procedures, but, you know, even a higher threshold. Um, so that, that's how our clinic, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're kind of lucky, I think, you know, we slowed down and then and it's been back up. Um, but I don't think oh, the fellows the, experience. Yeah, no, the fellows experience, I think was minimally impacted. We're really proud of that. You know, one of the things for our fellowship that we understand is it's a huge sacrifice. Um, you know, you've, you've trained, uh, you know, so long through residency and then now you're taking another year, you're being underpaid, quite frankly, for your level of education. And so, you know, we, we want to make sure that the fellow gets a good experience and that it's worthwhile, you know, that sacrifice that they're taking for that extra year. So, you know, that, that carried through the, the COVID as well. Um, as far as our fellows and jobs, one staying with us, uh, so that wasn't significantly impacted, but our other fellow, it's awful actually. I mean, he interviewed at five places, got five offers, took a job, and then they took away the job. Um, uh, from because him. of COVID. Because of COVID, it had nothing to do with him. He's incredibly, good candidate. So he's actually going to stay on with us um, for, you know, six or seven months, you know, we're busy enough that we were able to take him until he can um, probably go back and join that practice. But it's, it, that's brutal. Yeah, I've been hearing all sorts of stories. Yeah, about offers getting taken back. And yeah, that was it. I mean, the offer, it's there, it's signed. I don't know the legality of all that. Right. Obviously, um, our current fellow, he's, he's a really sweet guy. And you know, he's not going to come out, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Etc. That one, that's just not his personality. Plus, you know, he eventually wants to move into that market. I'm not sure that's how he wants to, you know, <laughs> himself off the bat. I mean, it's just so uh, that big practice. I'm, I'm not happy. Uh, they, they could have handled that better, yeah. uh, much better. But I, I have a friend that's in Arizona, and she works for a large group. Um, she's Team R Sports, and she took they she's guaranteed salary, and they took a fourth of her salary away, <laughs> which was a lot of money. And I was like, don't sign it. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, you know, but the money's not coming in. You know, it's, it's tough. Exactly. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. 
and if elective surgeries get shut down again here, it's going to be a bloodbath, I think. Oh I know, that's what's so scary. Yeah, and just with the numbers rising, you just don't know. Especially for all of us in private practice. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You think that uh, doctors are you know, immune to recessions, but I guess pandemics can hit us in some way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are not. <laughs> all right, you guys, go ahead and type in your questions. Do you have any questions for... Dr. Sarosky. I have a question for you guys. How many interviews do you think that the fellows should try to do um, now that they're doing everything Zoom before they're probably limited, you know, and how many you could actually fly to with time and money? Well, I mean, you can match um, 10 programs. So, um, I mean, I'd say, I'd say as many as they can. It just, it just gives a reference of perspective in terms of what you're looking for, because you might not know what you're looking for. Or you've, probably only had um, or mostly had an academic experience, an academic center experience, and you're not quite sure if that's where you want to go, private practice or big or small groups. I think you don't know until you start talking to people. So I'd say as many as you can get your hands on. Yeah, you, know, you have to be honest with yourself and you know, how competitive you are. Like, like you know, when you apply to medical school or to college, um, you know, if you have a, a you know, 4.0 and a 1550 SAT, uh, you can be a little more confident applying to less schools. That, that wasn't me. Um, that wasn't me. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that, you know, and then, you know, the, the programs, unfortunately, I think right now, if you're in a, maybe a bigger name program, and I think that changes uh, too. I don't even know what the best programs are these days, but that helps a little bit too. There's, there's a lot of really small programs out there and it's tough for us to gauge what someone's training is right now, right? For a program that's one year old. And so, you know, and then we don't get to spend as much time and, and, you know, we don't want to be too mean and really pimp them on a, on a 30 minute Zoom call. So that person probably has to apply to more, you know, than someone that's, that's going to, you know, a bigger name program. That's a good, that's a good idea. Yeah. All right. Well, James has a question for you guys. So he says, I understand when you do an ACGME fellowship, you can get board certified through ABMS. So like, you know, sports medicine or pain medicine boarded. Since fine fellowships are non-ACGME, what is your opinion on non-ABMS certifications after your fellowship, such as the ABIPP or the ABPM? Oh, these are good questions. So, um, you know, this is kind of goes back. There was an article published in PMR Journal Gosh, it's been quite some time. It was a count, a point counterpoint. Yeah, we talked about that article. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and you know that article, I think, will will stand the test of time. It was very, yeah. um, and I, I read. It, I was like, this is exactly right. Um, so the question is, is how important is it to be boarded? I think in, in pain, uh, ABM. Uh, I'm boarded in, in pain still. Um, I'll let it expire. I won't recertify. Um, I think it it does nothing for me. Um, in fact, if anything, I don't tell anyone anymore on board in pain. I, I, I tell people I'm a physician. I'm very proud of that. Um, I think being boarded in pain connotes that you write opiates, which we never have and, and never will. I mean, we do, someone comes in with a compression fracture, of course, we'll write opiates, but you know, we're about short courses of opiates, um, you know, and you know, we're very, very low doses. I think, I think we all know that high doses is, is, is not a good course of action. So just, I think being boarded in pain, honestly, you know, makes people think that you should be writing opiates. And I don't really know that it adds any uh, business. Um, the, the other issue is credentialing to surgery centers and hospitals. Um, and so I think uh, that is a fear 
that may or may not be valid. I know in Arizona it's not. Um, the, the cruel truth is kind of money talks. And if you're well-trained in procedures, every surgery center, every hospital wants you doing procedures in their facility because you're going to make them lots of money. A lot of money. <laughs> and this is something that a private practice fellowship, I kind of explain to people how this all works because mm -hmm. um, I, I kind of get it because I'm not shielded from it. But um, anyways, so if you do, if you're well-trained and you can show that you've done the numbers and you have someone signing off, you can be credentialed anywhere. Now, those other pain boards, um, you know, again, just like even the, the big, the, the one that's the American Board of Medical Specialty, I don't, I don't see any value to any of them. But maybe someone else, if they have a different goal in their practice, and they, then maybe it makes more sense. Yeah, and probably out of fear, I did the, um, became a diplomat American Board of Pain Medicine. I have a hence let it expire. I, I don't know if that allowed me to do a procedure in a hospital. I don't think it did. I really don't think it has any bearing and doesn't currently because I don't have it anymore. But I, I agree that association with being pain medicine or pain management is, it can be a negative one and, and, and if you're practicing the way we are. Definitely, I agree. I think it's important if you want to do academics or maybe, you know, working at a university, but I didn't have any issues. Like you said, they just look at your procedure logs, your numbers, how many, how many procedures did you do in fellowship, and that's all really they, they needed, you know. And the reality is some that are ACGME don't even get as many, right? Exactly. So that's, no, that's exactly. the other, yep. you know, uh, issue is that, uh, you know, not everyone is getting those, those numbers in ACGME. Definitely. All right. Any other questions, guys? And I wanted to kind of piggyback on what you had said about doing, do you guys do many procedures at a hospital? Uh, we did initially. So initially yeah. when we um, were in practice um, on our own, we were part of an um, anesthesia-based uh, pain management practice when we started for a couple of years. But when we started on our own and we weren't set up to have a fluoroscope in the office, we um, did procedures in a hospital-based setting and then in a surgical center and then brought that in-house. Right. And for pay, I don't think people also realize like for patients, it's significantly cheaper to not do it inside of a hospital. So um, once you do that, you'll realize that. copay versus an office copay. Exactly. Yeah, it's staggering difference. And it is. rigmarole in terms of getting a procedure, you know, signing a DNR and being there for half of a day and then being a really big field procedure. Yes. The convenience of it in the office is. Yeah, and turnover time at a hospital, you will be able to do way more procedures at a, at a procedure suite than at a hospital because they're turning it over the room like a OR, so you'll be twiddling your thumbs yep. when you could have done four injections by now, so Everyone's that's something gown. else to consider. Yeah, they have a stretcher. <laughs> What's shocking, an amount of waste, for example, when you do yes. an injection with isovio, we use an entire bottle for one patient, toss yeah. it out. And then that's given all over to the patient in terms of cost. Yeah, and the bike. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, one more point on the last question with ACGME is um, we all have biases, right? And so we're not ACGME, so I'm giving a bias there. But similarly, your residency is ACGME. So when you ask those attendings, should I do ACGME or not, you're getting a very biased answer, right? So I think you just want to recognize you know, who you're asking the question. I'm biased and they're biased. But, um, you know, I think a lot, I think a lot of people are getting the understanding that maybe ACG is a tonight for everybody. But, um, and those residency directors, I think underestimate what we're doing in private practice. You know, I think they assume 
you know, that we don't ever read journal articles again and we don't stay up to date. And, and I don't think that's always true. Um, and then next on your question. Well, can I ask you oh, yeah. on that? Well, and that's, I think, changed up. This was the first year I haven't, I haven't barely heard the question. Um, every year we interview fellowships, we've had fellowship for eight or nine years. And that's a question that we get repetitively this year. I, I'm not sure that we even heard it once, maybe once out of 20 interviews. So um, because of the NAS affiliation, it almost filled that gap really importantly. So, and then as far as the setting for procedures, I think it's a, it's a really good question for residents to understand too. So you have in office, you have surgery centers, you have hospital, and roughly speaking, um, the cost to the patient. So, you know, a lot of times people at surgery centers and hospitals, they'll justify exorbitant fees because they say the insurance covers it. Almost everybody has a high deductible um, plan now. So really it's the patient that's paying it, right? Mm -hmm. And that leads to higher premium. So um, the cost of doing a procedure in a surgery center is usually tenfold of what it is in an office and 20-fold in a hospital. Um, and then, you know, the other thing too is this, I, I think it creates a certain level of fear for a patient too when they're treated like they're getting open heart surgery um, and they're getting intraarticular hip injection. Um, with, when you go to a hospital, literally they're, you know, they're being wheeled in in a gurney and it's, yeah, it's, it's insane. Um, I've also had patients that are 400 pounds and they won't let me do a surgery. They won't let me do a hip injection uh, because their BMI is too high and therefore they're too risk to have surgery. Um, so yeah, that kind of goes back to my original reason why I wanted to private practice. <laughs> <laughs> and the reimbursement is way different too, right? And what you, you guys get to keep with doing an injection at an ASC or a hospital versus in-house. This, yeah, and so this is something that I had no idea uh, when I was a resident. Um, so when you're in office, you get something called a side of service difference. So you keep the entire amount. Um, so for an epidural steroid injection, a single level transframinal for Medicare, we get paid probably, I don't know, in the ballpark of about $300. Um, and that, but that, you know, that has to pay for your whole overhead and, and all the supplies, pretty much the fluoroscope. Nurse, um, nurse yeah. So when you're in a surgery center, um, you get paid uh, $80, $100 in that ballpark. Um, that's, your, that's your professional component. And then the facility will get, you know, significantly more, um, you know, usually in the thousands. But, you know, if you own the surgery center, obviously that can be lucrative, but uh, often you don't or you have a small portion. So, um, you know, you get too much smaller piece of the pie. And the same thing holds true for the hospital. The other thing too, I think for residents, you know, they're looking across the country is there's huge differences in parts of the country. Um, that was something I had no idea of, um, you know, when I was a resident, um, you know, and I don't know how much that matters to people, but, you know, from malpractice to reimbursements, to, there's a lot of those things and it's, it's hard to understand each, each market, I think, but, but they are and you, something that someone may want to look into if they have uh, some openness in, in where they ultimately end up. Carter asks, is it recommended or common to do an away or audition rotations during residency or fellowship? I'm not in our practice, so I can't really speak to how common that is. We get the request sometimes, I think, about that in our practice, not very often. Um, it's just very busy with um, our practice and our physician assistants and the fellows and the fellows experience and the patient experience. So we don't, we don't have that. It's certainly not at all necessary. It's not something that I would look at at all. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's hard, Carter, in residency to do a rotation outside of what is already set because it has a lot to do with like malpractice, what is covered um, during and who's where your paycheck is coming from your hospital. So they want you associated with that hospital. Sure. So um, it's very difficult to do in a way during your residency. And procedurally, like if you're in, I, I see people, uh, some of our applicants do um, rotations. Uh, it seems to be easier to get needle time or experience that way, you know, within their own hospital system for, for that same reason in terms of insurance coverage. Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, <clears throat> if you're interested in a program, though, you could, you know, parlay a, a weekend and call the program and say, hey, can I shadow you guys on a Friday or, or a Thursday? Um, you know, I think if you wanted to kind of push yourself above the competition or, or introduce yourself, that, that'd probably be better to spend a day or two. It's a little less imposing too, because like Susan said, our practice, you know, our, our goal is to make sure the fellows, you know, get, that's that's our priority. And then, you know, we also have PAs that we're overseeing as well. So it can be pretty busy to, to tack on another person. No, I think that's perfect. Take a couple of vacation days and um, go check out the programs. And to, to kind of piggyback on your point about just this private practice in the NAS, that how many people didn't know about these private practice fellowships that are out there? You know, I was very fortunate to have a wonderful classmate, <laughs> Dr. Buva, who we, you know, we researched a lot of programs during our PGY three year. And because um, there's some programs that are great and there, there's some private programs that are not so good. So definitely do your due diligence and research every program that you're looking at. Ask to talk to their fellows that have graduated, see where they're working out, ask them how many procedures that they got during that year. Um, all those things will come in handy when you're trying to make a decision. Absolutely. All right, well, I think our questions are dying down. Well, we appreciate you guys taking the time and coming out Thanks on a Saturday. It's so nice to see your face. It's so good to see you guys. No, maybe when um, AAP Menar opens back up, <laughs> we'll get to see each other in person and yeah, go to lunch, so all of us. Yeah, virtually this year, however that is. Uh, we'll be at the fellowship fair virtually. I'm not sure what that's Yeah, like. are they still going to do something like that? They're going to do the job and fellowship fair still. Yeah. Not Sure how that we got an email, I think, two days ago. I didn't yeah. read it yet, but yeah. not the specifics out there yet, but it's happening. That'll be, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, that's interesting. It'd probably be like online dating, <laughs> like people float <laughs> through your Zoom room, <laughs> like speed dating. Speed dating, together for 20 years. We don't know online, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll fill you in. So, this is um, very good. Yeah, join us tomorrow, everyone. Um, we have Dr. Christian Taylor on. She is a pediatric PMNR um, physician, and she went to medical school with me. She's great, and she's going to fill us in on pediatric PMNR and CBD. She's an expert in CBD. She was very pivotal in getting the bill passed in Texas to um, have spasticity treated with CBD. So, yeah, we'll ask her some questions about that. Yep. So everyone, thanks for joining. You know, as always, you can follow us on Facebook, IG, and um, this video will also be on YouTube. So you guys can share and watch it there as well. Guys, right, so have a great weekend. Thank you, guys. Oh, and our podcast. <laughs> and our podcast, Spotify and iTunes. Yeah. <laughs>